sucker. Welcome back, chums, buddies, friends, pals, uh, well wishers, uh, listeners, and um, you know even people that really dislike us but just really wanted to tune into this episode. Um, this is so long, suckers. Um, y- you know that already. We're back, baby. We haven't recorded for a while, which is becoming our modus operandi. Um, I'm Callum, and with me, as ever, is Eddie. Good to be back. It has been a while. What did we actually? What did we do last time? Was it? Was it? Um, yeah, winter sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And was, since uh... then, we have had our own winter sleep, and you know, we've gone into hibernation. We've come back. Mm. Um, I, I am often you know, described rested. as a bear, so I have literally been in a cave. Back to your your dislike of Ben Whishaw, but um, I I don't know. Have have the modern Paddington films like relocated Paddington in terms of London and in terms of where the Browns live? I don't remember it being that bougie in the original uh, uh, book series. I don't know. <laughs> I, can't, I, don't know. Yeah. I can't recall. <laughs> He's just so fucking <laughs> annoying. Oh. <laughs> you know what? I don't think I'm on board with the cult of Paddington anymore. And I think it's the TV series that's ruined it for me. I mean, okay. I, I am not I am not its audience. It's clearly for, like, young, young children. But, you know, as a result of having a young, young child, I've watched some of it. And I just can't I was waiting for you to clarify <laughs> that for the listeners that you have a young young child. For a minute, I thought you were just going to keep talking about it as if that's just how you spend your days watching yeah, a Paddington you'd, cartoon. You'd have to be a cultist, wouldn't you, to go to go that deep? Um, a lot of people are though. What, what with Paddington? What what would the Paddington cultists be called? Oh, uh, let me see. Um, Pad. Oh uh, no, no, no! Sorry, I was trying to think of a pun on bronies, but then I realised that the only part is pony, so that wouldn't work with Paddington. Fuck, the I don't know. Padd- Paddingtons, the Padding Doms. The, Jesus Christ! <laughs> I don't know. That sounds, sounds like they're sexing it up, but like the dominant Paddington bunch. I don't know. Um, oh, okay, right. Like Paddington is a dominant part of society. Yeah, I was thinking like Faddington. That yeah. would be my uh, my serious um, suggestion. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. This this should this should probably all be cut. <laughs> no way, no. We've got to talk about it. Uh, talk about Paddington, um, because then we can go from you know the light to staring into the abyss for twelve and a half hours, um, as you so wonderfully put it to me before we started watching. Um, which I got to say, Eddie, you really put me off watching it for a little while there when you described it as staring into the abyss. Do you think there's more to this? Than just, I think there's bits where it's just very abyssy. Uh, yeah. Well, the the pacing certainly has that kind of element, and um, I mean, we'll, we'll go into all that. Um, yeah, I guess. So to clarify, um, yeah. What what are we what are we even talking about? Callum? Yeah, yeah. What are we doing this week? <laughs> right, guys and gals and everybody else. Um, we are uh, talking about Too Old to Die Young, which was released in 2019. This was directed by Nicholas Wending Refn, created by Wending Refn and Ed Brubaker, and it was written by Wending Refn, Brubaker, and for the last two episodes, um, another screenwriter called... And huge apologies to this writer, but I'm not sure if it's Halley or Haley Gross. Um, this is a series produced for Amazon Studios. There's only one season of it. I think it was intended to kind of run for longer, but as it is, it was uh, not renewed for a second season. So we've kind of just got this single... Which, to be honest, is about the funniest <laughs> thing about it, right? That after all this, Refn was like, yeah, well, we'll do a second. We, yeah, exactly. I mean, we're going to really get into this when we get into the plot and the um, filmic qualities of this series. Obviously, we're going to have to discuss like why we've chosen to do a series in terms of being a long film. Um, we're going to get into that, but I think we both agree, like, what the hell were they planning on doing after this? Mm. Um, anyway, so it's a series produced for Amazon Studios that runs to 10 episodes of varying lengths, and it totals 754 minutes or 12 hours and 35 
54 minutes. As with all of our episodes to date, we will start by asking why this piece of work is so fucking long. Um, But this time, we're also, as I say, going to be asking to what extent it can actually be evaluated as a single work in the first place. And then, of course, finally, we'll be working towards answering, (sighs) was it all fucking worth it? Um, (laughs) So, which I think, to be fair to Too Old to Die Young, a lot of viewers ask whenever they walk out of a Wending Ruffin movie. Um, Not us. We are fans, I think it's safe to say, um, yeah. to an extent. Eddie, in fact, is currently co-editing uh, an academic uh, essay collection on uh, Refn, um, which is going to be very yeah. exciting. Which I don't know whether I should or shouldn't mention, uh, bearing in mind I've got some opinions on sure. this. Uh, but of course, you could be... To be honest, I think ultimately, you don't want to be too close to the things you write about anyway. I do think Refn is a fascinating filmmaker who's done some great work and has done some middling and even a few kind of less good works. Yeah. Um, and Too Old to Die Young, I have some strong feelings about. Now, I do have a specific question, actually, before we get into like the context and, and the background um, for this miniseries um, to you. When we last recorded and we introduced um, Too Old to Die Young at the very end of the Winter Sleep episode, mm. uh, you said that as part of the kind of process of putting this latest book together that you've kind of exercised Refn. Like, you, you feel like you're, you're kind of over it, you've done that, that's a project now. Mm. Do you feel like going back to this um, and having to think about him again, and also, obviously, you're still in the process of actively editing uh, the book. Do, I don't know, do you feel like you've kind of got back into uh, that headspace, gotten re-interested in him as an artist again? Yeah, I think to some extent. And I think actually, like, over... I think one thing that's really interesting about Too Old to Die Young is it kind of shows both his qualities as a creator and also his worst impulses Mm. and it really does and in fact in a way that kind of maybe is patience testing it really does yo-yo between the almost sublime and the almost insufferable um and i do think (laughs) that's something that you don't often get in a feature film because you know there's i think there's episodes in this series that are for instance longer than only god forgives I think Only God Forgives is a 90-minute movie. Maybe it's 91, 92. I'm pretty sure there are a few 100-minute episodes in this TV series. And when you said said in the the intro just now that they sort of like jump between lengths, we've got as little as like 30, the final episode being very much the shortest, is 30 minutes. Um, And then you do have not just like one or two, but several that are like 80 to 100. Mm. Um, And sometimes I feel like that is indicative of the problem here, that actually, you know, Refn is kind of not just like kind of given license, like in kind of a more of an abstract sense to indulge, but he's being given like the actual practical requirements to indulge everything that he's interested in. And mm-hmm. um, and I suppose one of the big questions about this series, which is really interesting um, for a podcast about length, is... The, the extent to which it was is ever necessary, because I would argue that this isn't a 13-hour plot, that this is, in fact, very much like a far tighter thing that he's just kind of, you know, given over to his um, really fascinating, but also for some people kind of incredibly self-indulgent interest in, in, in style being kind of, and the aestheticization of, you know, film and uh, you know television if you will here um you know i'm I, I, we mentioned earlier i'd recently seen asteroid city um and you know i sort of sort of thought of that as like kind of the most 
Anderson-esque Wes Anderson I'd ever seen. Um, and in many ways, Too Old to Die Young is kind of the most, most Reffin-esque, despite the fact that there's kind of collaborative elements there as well. Um, but in terms of the look, the feel, the tonal sort of shifts, um, although I do think Brubaker probably has a lot to answer for maybe there um, there as well. Um, so to kind of like come back to the question... Um, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily reinvigorated for returning to it. Like this edited collection I've been working on has got, has kind of uh, gone on for quite a number of years now. And I'm kind of at the point where, you know, you just want to sign off and, uh, and, and be done with it. Um, get it out in the world and see what people think. But I, I did come back to this with new eyes, having, you know, kind of got to the point where I couldn't really add anything more to that book, even if I wanted to now. Um, so I'm not going to be like suddenly like, oh, I've got this new take on Too Old to Die Young. And, and, you know, I should also preface all of this by saying I personally don't really write about Too Old to Die Young in the book. It does come up in the book. There's several chapters that deal with it at length. Um, it's not really the thing that I've been dealing with. I don't know. Like, like it's it's nice to come back to it. It's nice to have a reason to after after sort of spending a lot of time like with certainly a few of his films um, held under the microscope um, to, to sort of, you know, come back to it and give it another go. Um, I feel like my opinion slightly changed on Too Old to Die Young on the second watch. Yeah, I mean, that, that would make sense with um, somebody like Refn who tends to um, have a... Uh, his approach tends to be kind of throwing a lot of things at the wall. And um, as, as is actually uh, mentioned in one of the chapters about Too Old to Die Young, um, a draft of which I've read, um, points out that he does tend to kind of, um, because he shoots a lot of his projects, not this one, I think, but a lot of his projects in uh, chronological order, he tends to have a fair amount of improv, um, even in the way the plotting kind of goes. So, you know, that kind Mm. of just backs up um, sort of anybody who argues that his uh, films are, you know, a, a little bit, incoherent um to some extent but before we apply all that to too old to die young um I, we should probably introduce uh from where it came uh, what is the context be- behind this uh, epic 12 and a half hour uh neon thing yeah so too old to die young basically brings together three contexts the first of which is the career of nicholas vinding refn um a really important cult filmmaker arriving in the early 1990s um making danish films before sort of slowly migrating to an american context where he's been largely based ever since um his collaboration here is with ed brubaker um a kind of very acclaimed eisner and harvey award-winning comic comics artist um often collaborates with Sean Phillips um, on some really important, um, notable uh, comics such as Criminal, uh, The Fade Out, um, Fatal is another good one, Kill or Be Killed, all excellent Mm. and all actually very much in the same sort of like lane as Too Old to Die Young. This does seem like a really good marriage of creative people. I mean, to clarify, of course, Brubaker is the uh, writer of the comics and Phillips is his um, uh, usual go-to illustrator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think when I said artist, I, I think I think I was meant, meant, meant more in the abstract way than in the he, yes, yeah. <laughs> As in, he, you know, writers can be artists too. Uh, but yeah, I realise so when we're talking about actual like drawn things, that is misleading. 
fine. Good clarification there, Callum. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> another another <laughs> important context is um, so you got so we got Refn, we got Brew Baker. The other important context is, of course, this being kind of a work of TV in some sense, um, and but being but, but but more specifically, kind of this SVOD era streaming television. This is an Amazon Prime. Um, I think we call it like a production in the kind of sort of like the umbrella sort of idea like in, in terms of like what that kind of suggests. But I think this is more like a prime financed piece than an action than, than they were mm. like, than they were actually being involved as like an active uh, producer. The idea for the series had been around for a while. Um, he started developing it in the early 2010s. Um, and the series uh, includes and develops a number of the stylistic and thematic concerns of the films he was making around that time. So 2010 would have kind of placed it around the same point in his career as Drive, which is probably, for my money, his most famous film. Um, It's probably his best received film. Um, Mm. It's probably his best film, to be honest. Even even now, I'd say it's it's, it's hard to kind of find too much wrong with Drive, um, whereas I think some of the other ones open themselves up to criticism the more time you spend with them <laughs> uh yeah so the plot the atmosphere uh the look of uh too old to die young clearly fuses together elements um of reference style during this kind of decade or so in which he also made only god forgives again collaborating with uh ryan gosling in the lead and um the neon demon uh sort of in the middle there um but sort of that 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 kind of um again being kind of interesting for being very entrenched in la and that sort of west coast noir sort of thing that this has going on um so yeah during during this time also refn's reputation is building um building is actually kind of an interesting word for it because his reputation has always been incredibly divisive and actually arguably only god forgives and the neon demon represents some of the most divisive films of his career he won best director at Cannes for drive in 2011 only god forgives on the other hand was famously booed um neon demon had that sort of split where some were applauding and some were um booing it sorry you were gonna say something there well, I do, I do think part of that is um, uh, obviously there's something to the individual qualities of the films, but he'd sort of, um, with Drive, which had kind of re-established him as um, something, uh, a name that, as you say, was kind of more recognisable to more people. I think after that and, and winning the, the Best Director Award at Cannes, you know, more people are simply paying attention to the films than previously. Mm-hmm. So I think just the the fundamental kind of stage for the possibility of greater uh, division in the reception to the works is kind of just built by virtue of having that sort of breakthrough uh, mm. moment, um, which he had never previously really quite uh, reached. Um, although, of course, you know, Fear Rex famously, Fear Rex is his third feature released in, what, 2003 or yeah. something. Um, and that that famously is like, that's his first attempt at doing an American film in America. It stars John Turturro. And famously, that kind of, you know, leaves him bankrupt and he has to go back to Denmark and all of that. So he, he has had these kind of like um, Icarus uh, moments, if you will, in his career. Yeah, and Herbert Selby Jr. Um, wrote Fear X. Of course yeah. he did, yes. It's, it's yeah. a really weird... I think... Fear, f- as a cult work, yeah. like from like lots of different angles, because John Turturro is like a pretty key cult actor as well. So you've got director, yeah. writer, actor coming together, producing a film that actually is probably underrated. Um, 
my take is that Fear X is uh, I I well I haven't rewatched Drive in some years, and that would still probably just about be my personal favorite or the film that I think is the most kind of um, complete. But I think Fear X really is uh, my other like favorite reference. Mm. Personally, that's my that's my hot take. That is a really hot take, actually. My my other hot take is that Pusher Three is the best of those uh, of that trilogy. Yeah, I, but I will say this though: the Pusher trilogy is consistent. Like this, that that is that is like mm. a real well. That is maybe if you see Pusher as kind of like a package, maybe that would be his best work. Um, I mean, you've mm. got you've got kind mm. of um, career making. Um, roles there for the likes likes of uh, Madge Mickelson, who um, is absolutely fantastic in uh, part two. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Would I say part three is anyway? Um, we can come back to that. I suppose <laughs> his cult reputation is an interesting thing in terms of also thinking about his style as well. Because one thing that's worth mentioning yeah. is his indebtedness to kind of waves of exploitation, um, and this is evident mm. in his early films. You know, Pusher being kind of like these gritty gangster movies. Um, so, kind of from a like a content perspective in terms of their uses of violence and stuff, they have that side of exploitation but also in their kind of intertextual sort of like borrowing from previous works they have that element of exploitation because exploitation in the truest sense is about stealing stuff it's not actually about transgressive content although it has since kind of acquired that sort of second meaning um so so you know it doesn't hmm. an exploitation work doesn't need to be intended for adults um you know it could be I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example at this point, like Star Wars exploitation, um, where, you know, <laughs> people are making rip-offs. Um, Flash Gordon in 1980, I suppose, would possibly be, you could look at as course, a film that's yeah. sort of capitalising on the success of Star Wars. It doesn't matter that Star that Flash Gordon, as kind of like a wider text, precedes Star Wars. In that particular moment, in the film context... Flash Gordon is borrowing yeah. from Star Wars's kind of success. So if you look at films like Pusher and Bleeder, those early Danish films that um, Reffin was making, you've got kind of evidence of exploitation and a huge indebtedness to 1970s crime cinema, um, to various things, in fact, but also kind of coinciding with another wave of exploitation um, that's happening in America, which was the likes of Quentin Tarantino. So Pusher quite often gets talked about alongside, you know, the likes of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction as being this kind of hyper-stylish, very self-aware, very sort of intertextually indebted, um, but also violent crime work. Um, and that's something that sort of like really kind of carries throughout Reffin's career because even when he kind of reaches this moment sort of in the early 2010s where his style becomes kind of like saturated around, you know, what it is that he's trying to do in his films. Um, that sort of exploitation never entirely goes away. Drive is kind of, you know, mm. it's very much like reference work, but it is kind of like splicing together Friedkin's to live and die in LA with Walter Hill's the driver um, with Michael Mann's thief um it's got la samurai um the melville film um in there as well and between them yeah. you've basically and, and and with the samurai sort of link as well it's got that kind of japanese sort of like the lone ranger type thing going on going on also there's a bit of taxi driver in there um like 
you know, and 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 in that and in that, you know, despite the fact that it, I, I do think transcends that sort of like pastiche effect that can sometimes happen where films that are just like, you know, have nothing original to say apart from you know, like to to kind of copy what has been done before. Um, it nevertheless kind of marks it as another work of exploitation. Um, and the same is true of Only God Forgives and then The Neon Demon, which basically in the last 20 minutes becomes a jallo slasher. Um, and I'm sure Argento's lawyers got on the phone. Um, so, yeah, exploitation is really important to all of this. And that, I think, is really important to think, like contextualising, but then thinking through the style and the look of his films, because it's not just like these crime, these crime movies that he's borrowing from, um, you know, as we see in too old to die young. And I think there is like a suggestion of in only, um, uh, only God forgives. Um, he's also increasingly interested in art cinema sensibilities, especially around slowness. I mean, like how often is it, can you like, you know, fuse together Jodorowsky with Simon Lang in terms of like a film <laughs> style, and you yeah. know that's what only God forgives is is effectively. So yeah, his films are marked by heavy stylization, um, high contrasts, neon colors. The look of them is very impressive. He has this deliberate hypnotic pacing. Um, he really enjoys like an atmospheric soundscape, um, especially in more recent films, uh, which have almost all, I think, been um, composed uh, by uh, Cliff Martinez, um, who does some excellent work again on uh, Too Old to Die Young. Oh, yeah. And actually really is maybe the MVP of the whole thing. On top of this, in terms of his style, um, thinking about more about content than the look of the thing, you have these kind of thematic preoccupations with masculinity, with crime, with violence. Um, also kind of like this, this incredible, like, almost pompous kind of philosophical ambition to sort of like talk about, you know, the end of, you know, the ends of man. And, you know, it's something <laughs> apocalyptic. I mean, this, this especially comes up in, um, in Too Old to Die Young, but we can see that also, in um, Drive, Only God Forgives, and Neon Demon. And I think you're absolutely right to sort of set up the fact that, like, these are, uh, the, this is coming from that period because almost all of those themes coalesce here. Like, those three works basically channel into this film yeah. a series thing that we're watching. Well, and along with, um, of course, um, something that was rel- or completely new, really, to his cinema with uh, Neon Demon, which is the kind of um, his particular look at um, womanhood or femininity or yeah. whatever you might call it. And, of course, yeah, that's, it's the first time he's really explored that is in Neon Demon, and then that does become part of the back end of uh, Too Old to Die Young, almost in a reflection of his own career uh, progression. Uh, in a sense yeah absolutely and he famously said around the time of neon demon that he made that film for the 16 year old girl in him and i think we might have to come back to the point about feminism or i'm gonna say it faux feminism that runs through Uh too old to die young as well because i do not i think you are giving a hell of a lot of rope to call this a feminist text although i do actually think that refn is trying to make it that way Mm. um yeah, this this the, the the point I'm trying to make really is uh, as much as anything about this 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 is hit the look of his films, the content of his films, the connectedness of his films, um, is is how basically it sort of all amounts to like a signature style, this this kind of cult auteur branding, which kind of 
you know, defines the text, but also overrides them. Like he is this film cultural figure now who is larger than his projects. I mean, we've seen him um, show up in, um, I think it's Gucci. It could be Prada. Um, Mm. He shows up in Hideo Kojima's Death Stranding. um, And the style, you know, the brand of him is is really important. So much so that he's now got a streaming service uh, by NWR, where he curates uh, cult films. Um, He basically shows off his cult film have you ever looked much of this um he his, he's oh, got his, i love he's got i, I love by NWR, yeah 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 oh, oh his posters his book yeah um no i've never actually i've i've seen some of the posters because like when it was out obviously you'd have articles being like you know refn has book out uh but no i've never perused the, the physical book itself no. it's called the art of seeing i believe um yeah, something like that um yeah. i've got so it so for context I, I this is it, like yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is his this is his coffee table book of um, like his personal collection of like old grindhouse posters, basically, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and he, and it's kind of like supported by I think there was a hashtag which is like um, culture is for everyone or something like that, which you know is is, mm. is, is absolutely I agree with that. I also think yeah, there's yeah. there's there's a really nice sort of breaking down of like taste hierarchies as well that you know that the the gritty grindhouse doesn't deserve the same sort of like academic scrutiny as you know the films of kurosawa so I, Mm. i i like the fact that he does represent this kind of this constantly traversing figure who is kind of stuck between stations of exploitation and cult but also art cinema, and I do think that his his ambitions to be artful. This is this is actually kind of what I wrote about in in the book myself. Um, his, like his status as an art filmmaker rather than as just like an exploitation filmmaker. So regard. So let's to get back to to, to Die Young. Then what we see here is Refn bringing together his usual filmmaking concerns for the work itself, but also there is this kind of metatextual element going on where the 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 the, the NWR brand is in full swing. It's quite clearly defined, um, perhaps more than it's ever been. This is kind of what makes this project, uh, sorry, allows this project to happen. It's not just that he's a good and interesting filmmaker; it's that he can be commissioned to make something. You know, this is. A total, what what do they call it? A, a, a pre pre packaged deal, pre packaged overall yeah. deal, something 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 along those lines. Because I, I can't, into... I couldn't find enough to uh, support or um, uh, contradict this, but I'm fairly certain it was essentially sight unseen. They just gave him money. He's like, I'm doing a crime series, and it was only when he came back and they saw what it actually was that it kind of became an issue. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's sight unseen. Um, Sight unseen, that's what it is, yeah. It's a crime series that kind of engages with a lot of kind of the style of um, prestige television. Um, It kind of entertains questions about what producers can do working within particular budgets. Um, I do think this film looks perhaps more expensive than it is. I I couldn't find myself when I looked what the budget was, um, Mm. but I do kind of get the impression that maybe there's less money here than it looks um i'm not quite sure i could be i could be totally wrong about that but i would guess that this probably had about 20 25 million attached to it i agree i mean it's probably got um a far higher budget than a lot of um first seasons by it totally inexperienced showrunners but it is definitely um yeah compared to his actual films episode to episode there's a lot of like kind of clear covering of you know like creative filmmaking to get around the fact that it's um, probably got less 
less money behind it. In- including the fact that this is an incredibly violent series where a lot of the violence, until it doesn't, happens off screen. Um, yes. You just know, you've seen enough Refn to know that, you know, he likes to show stuff. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't turn away from violence. So there's possibly yeah. this, this, this kind of, like, evidence that, that, may, that maybe the, uh, that, that he was having to work within certain limitations that are being set. But nevertheless, you know, this is auto-led, totally directed by him. You know, it's not like Scorsese showing up for two episodes of Boardwalk Empire and then disappearing again, uh, which mm. is an interesting com- point of comparison as well, because I do think you can watch those first episodes of Boardwalk Empire and unless you knew it was Scorsese, it looks like an HBO pilot. Yeah. Whereas yeah. I do think that, to reference credit, he does absolutely retain his signature style here. So we've got peak television happening at around this time. It's been five years since Netflix launched its prestige show House of Cards, which kind of initiated Netflix's kind of um, experiments with original programming. Yet for money-hungry executives and exhausted audiences, it felt like a lifetime between that and this. Spurred on by a pathological need to compete with Netflix, Prime Video had been in the original films and series business for just a few years. Incidentally, though, neither their prestige film branding nor their embarrassing roster of TV series has anything on Netflix in the popular imagination. They're also supported by the fact that they're one of the biggest companies in the world. I mean, Netflix... Like, Netflix feels massive in terms of streaming, but as a company compared to Amazon, like... Amazon is a giant. Almost like, like there isn't actually competition between the two because obviously, you know, Amazon isn't like they're they're in TV and video as like a as a TV and video, TV and film as like a secondary subsidiary. Um, well, that's 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 precisely it. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, Netflix moves from um, being a mail order DVD company to then they start having uh, their online streaming service for things that are within their uh, title, uh, their library of subscription titles. And then they commission a couple of original shows, uh, which, which obviously, as you said, hit in uh, 2013. And yeah, part of the reason that Amazon are in the, uh, in the position to become kind of the first um, proper competitors to that is, as you say, because they're already the biggest company in the world. So what we're seeing with um, all of the shows and films um, that they start putting out is uh, actually very different to Netflix. It's that um, the prime uh, subscription uh, service, you know, the viewing subscription service only existed really as a kind of, um, you know, another benefit to get people signing on to the prime subscription mm. shopping service. And then when they start um, producing these original titles to make more people want to get the prime streaming service, it's still ultimately there only to get you um, interested in and using Amazon yeah. as a shopping service. Um, it's completely, and there's a tech company in all of this, and it's, uh, it's, it's absolutely one of those cases. Um, you know, this is not comparable to any traditional studio where the primary business yeah. is putting out the quote-unquote content. Um, the primary business is still what it's been for Amazon ever since the, the, uh, uh, the late 90s when it was founded. It's, it's, it's a shopping service. So what we've got here is a mainstream American television company commissioning a film auteur with no real experience in television before this, aside from directing um, a couple of episodes of Miss Marple, um, which you have to see (laughs) to believe. Um, One of which the lowest rated episode ever in the UK, and neither of us can figure out exactly why that would be. (laughs) Well, yeah. but but he's not making Miss Marple here. Um, instead, he's sticking to his exploitation cult style, um, 
making divisive art house, grind house, violent um, works, providing a crime scene that has no clear narrative guiding it, um, no recognizable true story or even like lead characters. Um, since this has been released, it was divisive among critics, um, not very popular with audiences, quickly cancelled, no second season is coming, um, and it has since been pretty much buried on the service. So it's interesting that, you know, there was clearly quite a lot riding on this. You can't fault either Amazon or Refn for trying to get this made or putting this out there because it is outlandish um, in many ways. Um, but the re- result of it is, it, you know, this. I don't think this is like... I don't even think it necessarily has the future, a future as a cult work. I think it's always going to be like a curious item in Refn's wider body of work. Yeah. But, um, but, rather than something that's going to come back in a big way. And also a kind of an example, um, you know, for historians of uh, the current sort of moment in screen cultures. One of the weirdest artefacts from this kind of proliferation, this scramble for more content for these streaming services, I think all of the stuff you just described about the uh, series um, is completely non-pariah. It it couldn't have happened before, it couldn't have happened after. It's just like um, Amazon being able to throw money at the wall for all of the aforementioned reasons. They are a business simply using this as a way to prop up um, the rest of their business. Yeah. it's absolutely something that, as you say, HBO maybe, but you're not really going to get in any other kind of uh, company um, that's commissioning shows like this. It's it's a total, like, this could only have fucking happened because of everything that you just described. Um, yeah. It's a very weird moment. Yeah. But we're the suckers who have decided to spend 12 hours and 34 <laughs> minutes watching it. Um, maybe I'd love to know how many people watched this in its entirety. I bet you, I bet you the drop off after like episode one and a half is astronomical. But well, one I'd be of, curious. One of the reviews that I read that was written when this came out, I can't remember, you know, you know one of the major sort of reviews sites or whatever, um, in a largely positive review said you uh, should probably just skip episodes two and six. Um, which I obviously think is ridiculous because those are narratively very important, but it also definitely speaks to uh, the idea of just the second episode being like too much for even somebody who quite likes the series. Um, you know, definitely speaks to what you just said about likely drop-offs um, in viewership. Also, I, uh, yeah, there's the the fact that those are also the two largely Mexico set ones suggests something pretty <laughs> pretty yeah. dodgy about that reviewer um i actually think i think episode yeah, yeah, two yeah. Is, is a really great episode but um uh, i think I it's later i think it's later that there's problems and i think most of the problems arrive in la but um yeah anyway so there's a lot of con- context there a lot of different things to kind of work through some of it we might come back to some of it we might not so much um but before we get there callum can you give me a quick ideally quicker than i've just given you context summary <laughs> of the plot i think i can yes um so yeah what is the 12 hours and 34 minutes dedicated to well martin jones miles teller uh the closest thing this has to a star and uh, even then you know uh martin jones is a stoic 30 year old cop in modern day los angeles and it's important to the show modern day is very much uh designed to mean during the trump administration 
or if you're yeah. listening to this in the future, uh, the first Trump administration. Um, God. Things, I'm sure that won't happen. <laughs> He's tracking badly. I don't know. Um, anyway, um, so it's kind of, yeah, very much modern Trump administration LA. Um, I also highlight Martin's age um, because a key part of his character in the whole story um, and its ideas as a whole uh, is that he's dating a 17-year-old uh, whom he met when she was 16. Wonderful. So one night, this is during the first episode, one night Martin's partner is murdered on the job. The killer is a young American with Mexican heritage named Jesus. His mother was a leader of the Mexican cartel here in LA. She was actually killed by Martin uh, doing a hit job for a rival gang. Jesus has got his wires crossed and he's gone and killed the wrong cop. Nevertheless, thinking that his job is done, Jesus goes and lies low in Mexico for a while with his uncle, who is the cartel's uh, overall Don, if you will. Well, not if you will, he's, he's the Don. Um, <laughs> you will. <laughs> if you will. <laughs> After a while, um, Jesus' uncle, who has been ailing for some time, passes away and power cedes to his son and Jesus' cousin, Miguel. Uh, the two cousins don't take to each other at first, but by the end of um, episode two, which is when all of this uh, stuff in Mexico happens, um, they've kind of formed a mutual respect. And so Jesus is tasked with returning to LA and taking over his late mother's operations. He's also, uh, during this, fallen in, or in, not fallen in love with, but sort of formed a connection or a bond with uh, Yaritza, um, who is his uncle's nurse, uh, basically. And it's revealed a little bit later in the series that they've married before returning to L.A. Um, they kind of become something of a cartel power couple. We'll go more into that later. There's Meanwhile, lots to be said about them. There's so much. Um Possibly too much. Um, anyway, Martin, uh, back in LA, Martin is promoted to detective. Um, he investigates the murder of a convicted and since released paedophile. And he quickly traces that murder back to a guy called Vigo Larson, played by John Hawkes, um, an ex-FBI man who has become a freelance hitman for Diana. Diana is an advocate for victims of sexual crimes who works in the DA's office. The pitch is very simple. Diana... Uh, uh, tracks down bad guys such as yon pedophile and she pays vigo to go and kill them um there's a weird kind of morality to the vigilantism um undergirding a lot of this series which is again very fascinating and we're definitely going to go into it so that all seems reasonable enough so martin decides instead of arresting vigo as he legally probably should he decides instead He's going to uh, uh, join him down in the gutter. He's going to work with Vigo and Diana on the side. Do not forget, he is himself legally a paedophile, a statutory rapist. Um, although yet another interesting and very... Uh, no, I'll, I'll leave it with the word interesting. <laughs> but naughty, you know, part of the series, um, is the way his young girlfriend, played by uh, the British actress Nell Tiger-Free, um, is not kind of treated as like this helpless, you know, victim of Martin's grooming or anything. She's she's almost like this kind of super genius who um, very, you know, uh, she, she knows herself. She's very present. She's very uh, intelligent and all of this. Um, so fundamentally, there's a lot of the kind of uh, writers are playing with in terms of legality, morality, ethics, etc. Anyway, Vigo is terminally ill and it's clear that Diana wants to kind of train Martin up to um, ultimately replace him when the inevitable happens. So far, so relatively linear. Martin, as I say, has also been doing hit jobs for another local crime boss called Damien. Um, after a couple of these, he requests specifically to only be hired to knock off bad guys. So again, paedophiles, rapists, um, 
pornographers, um, the entirety of episode five, which is probably the best single um, episode, sees him going to Albuquerque where he has to track down these two guys that make snuff films. Um, it's it's very raffiny and very interesting. Um, problem is, again, back in LA, Damien has moved into former cartel territory. So when Jesus and Yaritza return to LA to reclaim their turf, things immediately get violent. Damien's crew is hit, and um, when he's kind of um, captured and has his hands cut off by Jesus, and he's kind of being threatened with a lifetime of pretty horrific torture that's genuinely kind of upsetting just to hear being described, um, Damien, in exchange for just being literally put down there and then, uh, reveals to Jesus that he got the wrong guy uh, all along. Um, Jesus's mother's actual killer, Martin, is still out there. Um, it is no time at all before Martin, who, by the way, has snapped and killed his girlfriend's father. Don't worry about it. Whatever. Is captured by Jesus and Yaritza, dragged over the border, tortured, murdered, and eventually beheaded. Um, there are still, at this point, two hours left in the series, at which point reference starts to weirdly wrap things up. In these final two hours, a few things happen. One, Vigo's mother passes away and he works through his feelings by going and destroying a trailer park full of rapists and paedophiles. Uh, he comes back to LA, totally unharmed, totally fine, and that's it for his story. Um, again, interesting uh, look at vigilantism and its possible positives. Diana, uh, who has spent much of the series being kind of low-level, weird and mystical, goes like full-blown visions, predictions of the future. She predicts A, uh, that someone will soon join her and Vigo to take Martin's place, and B, the future in general, is one of untrammeled apocalyptic Trumpian nihilism. As to the accuracy of these visions, well, number one, uh, Jesus, having returned to LA, decides that he will become king of kings and, I quote, turn the city into a theme park of pain. Hooray. So that's the last we see of him, but that very much feeds into the uh, prediction of apocalypse and nihilism and um, kind of untrammeled id and all of this. Secondly, and kind of on the flip side, uh, Yaritza, um, who throughout the series has kind of chosen to make herself the so-called high priestess of death, she's a big uh, tarot card reader, um, has been kind of enacting her own yet more righteous vigilante vengeance on bad people. Um, in the final scene of the show, goes and guns down a bunch of cartel rivals in a bordello. And that's it, that's the end of the series. Um, one interpretation that you can make of this is that there is a kind of deliberate uh, duality going on. I mean, the final 60 minutes of the show spread across the final two episodes are pretty gnomic. And, um, you know, you kind of there are a lot of interpretations that one can bring into it. But one such one is that Diana has predicted at once an apocalypse in Jesus and a kind of, on the other hand, rise of righteous feminine justice as being enacted by Yaritza. So I don't know, that's the kind of thought process that Refn wants us to go out on. Yaritza stalks out of her rival's bar and into the light, quite literally. Uh, there's really stomping rock music. I don't know. I mean, it's pretty good, but it's, as I say, pretty gnomic um, and open to a lot of interpretations. So the real question is, as with all of the episodes, um, <laughs> what about all of that demands a full 12 and a half hour season of television? Eddie. Why is Two Olds Die Young so fucking long? God knows. Um, well, <laughs> I suppose this is the thing, right? This 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 TV series is almost the perfect example of that phrase, which is a bit tired, of style over substance. 
So, oh no, you went there. <laughs> did I? Did I go there too soon? Is that too soon? No, 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 no. I think. Wait, what, what do you mean then? What's but the... I think. But I think it's important. Now, I'm not saying that it's substanceless, yeah. but I think there's moments where he just gives over completely to style. That actually, either he's kind of experimenting with the form itself. You know, what can you do with duration? What can you do with? like stillness as well. Like stillness is really mm. important in key scenes here where like they almost, cre- like everything almost freezes into like these like tableau type, of, you know, we get these tracking shots. It's like, and, and you can see them moving, but they're moving incredibly slowly. Um, now, I don't actually think shooting anything in the way that Refn has chosen to shoot it really does much to advance what the, the, the 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 series is already doing, so I do think these these kind of like these moments of like pure style are experiments with style, um, rather mm-hmm. rather than things. And this is why I do think the style over substance kind of fits is because I don't think like us watching a conversation play out in real time across fifteen minutes or so is necessarily giving us anything in addition to that, like plot wise, or even in terms of how we would read it. Um but it does have this kind of like there is this formal gravitas. Um, you know, the fact that this whole thing is supposedly about the end of the world means that he's kind of maybe feels obligated to give it a certain heaviness to kind of go with that sort of thematic interest. I don't know. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Well, I, um, I, the apocalyptic um, element of the show's style, I think is precisely the key to, um, uh, to how it's kind of being made. I mean, I don't think we've necessarily um, specified this, but a lot of it is so very slow yeah. moving, like slower even than the kind of like high formalism at times of Only God Forgives and Neon Demon. And also Fear X, which was kind of his first experiment with something like or something resembling uh, yeah. slow cinema. But here, it, it you know, as you say, he really drags conversations along um, to their utmost intricate detail when there's a lot of um, information that you know the, the screenwriting guides um you know of your would say are absolutely extraneous um you know cut all that shit sort of thing and you could you know for, for people who approach lengthy works in what i think is quite a fallacious way which is like oh it could have been edited uh, you know by, by this this and this um then there is a lot that you could um uh, leave out to get this down to about you know six uh, tight hours but the slowness and the detail and uh, things like watching Jenna Malone masturbate in real time um, during the final half hour and then dance to Goldfrap in real time during the final half hour we literally get the entirety of Ooh La La uh, playing out in this protracted shot that that lasts the entire four minutes of the song just a very as you say very slow tracking it's one single shot fixed possession and it just tracks along and that's what Refn thinks a woman's nervous breakdown looks like you wank and then you dance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, again, not not entirely sure what to make of it, but it's fascinating. But um, yeah, so I, I can see why both the sort of gaudiness that we do associate with Refn, but also the austerity that he's really pushing to its mm. brink here, and particularly in the medium of television, which rarely has 
um, that genuine kind of aesthetic slowness. There's a wonderful, um, if I could recommend to you and listeners, um, article in possibly The Atlantic, but just, you know, Google Better Call Saul Slow TV or Slow Television, and you'll find a wonderful article about the slow qualities in that show. Um, but anyway, it's, it's, it's very rare within this medium, even during the streaming age, when, you know, famously creators can just allow individual episodes to be fucking 90 minutes long because there is no um, broadcast slot. You know, they can do whatever yeah, yeah. they want in terms of length. But, but aesthetic slowness, as I say, still very rare. Anyway, so I can see why that kind of like the gaudiness that he uh, indulges in, but also the austerity on display here um, are actually pretty perfect vehicles to convey the ideas that I think he's trying to get across. So uh, you've got uh, quite superficially, there's that neon plastic equality um, to the look of the film, which kind of reflects a neon plastic equality to late America, if you will. Um, the kind of cultural degradation that he's trying to evoke. But then also the pacing specifically does feel like that kind of slow crawl towards the end of the world or um, for those kind of um, the slow tracking shots or the static shots kind of staring into the abyss to, again, borrow your description of it. Um, So basically there is actually, um, and this isn't always the case with Refn, a very real and meaningful link between the style and the substance, if you will, um, the, the ideas that he's trying to work through. It is interesting, I think, that Refn kind of always employs um, in a superficial way um, the basic elements of this style in a lot of his recent works, but I think it's when you start looking for the small differences between how he makes it, each of his works that you do kind of find a bit more to um, what he's actually doing. For this project, I don't know to what extent you'd agree with this, but there can sometimes be a sort of graphic novel quality to uh, the way he chooses to frame things and the way he chooses mm. uh, chooses to cut between frames. Um, so I think that's quite interesting in terms of Brubaker. Um, and I think I think the dialogue is one of the most one of the areas where its kind of comicness comes through. Yes, um, yeah. especially in kind of like the speechifying. Um, which quite which mm. characters tend to get. There's 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 like a monologue in the very first episode where you've got Martin with Larry, um, like they've just. Uh, I don't know if this is before or after Larry like harasses a woman who he's pulled over for speeding or whatever. Oh yeah, so so Larry is Martin's ill-fated partner at the beginning yeah, yeah, the one, yeah the one who is murdered by jesus um instead of martin um for, for and he's this active misogynist he's a really ugly character immediately you're kind of reveal uh, uh, relieved when he's fucking shot in the head 10 minutes in yeah you're like um, and, I, and i do think that's kind of an interesting sleight of hand there is that like you we've literally got refin who's like asking us to think better of martin um although i do yeah. I, I, I do think <laughs> yeah. i do think the sort of the measures he places on men um which mo- most often are uh, in regard to their treatment of women um in this in this mm. in this series but i think i think larry says something along the lines of we're not even in control of our own lives you know they, they are women it kind of sets up a thematic interest early on that i don't know if is ever fully resolved um certainly mm. for the male characters but i think the sh- i think the show is quite quite consciously shifts focus away from men um towards the women but yeah you get this kind of this kind of, and that feels very comic booky there's like there's a monologue in in the final episode i think with diana where she's talking about mm. um you know, well you mentioned earlier like jesus talking about like 
the playground of pain or the theater of pain or whatever it's called like that feels like comic book dialogue it doesn't sound like anything reference written um despite the kind of the it being sort of set within something that looks like a reference film so i do think there are moments where you can see these collaborations coming through and i think the pulpiness kind of plays into its favor you know you've got you know a plot that's interested in tarot but you've also got kind of like archetypes of you know different sort of pulps or crime sort of like novels and stuff um going on here and there Mm. yeah i think i think the the look of it i think maybe leading with the point about style over substance is is perhaps a little bit unfair because i do think the look of it is incredibly calculated um and i do quite what i really admire about it is it's like is the unapologetic way in which you know refn is basically like i've mounted this thing it might not be for you. In fact, it probably isn't. Like, it doesn't seem like he's making this for any audience <laughs> in particular. Um, because, like, mm, mm. who is this for? Um, you know, it's, it's something that, that, like, is stylistically closer to a Bilatar film than anything within, like, crime cinema. <laughs> um, but has the yep. violence of, like, a Scorsese movie. Um, I, I think maybe going back to how we framed um, where his career is at the moment that he makes to Old Star Young, it's kind of for Ref and Coulter. Yeah. He, he, he has kind of conned Amazon into giving him loads of money for something that's so that's not even just stringently, mm. you know, auteurist or quite difficult to get into, but it is, as you say, it has kind of no audience beyond people who are already really interested in what reference uh giving and that's that's a small audience all told really i think i think the style of it is interesting regarding that point about it being like knowingly or terrorist as well like i Mm. do think that you know based on nothing other than a hunch but by virtue of the way his films look especially after drive so only god forgives neon demon and now this he is entertaining the idea of himself as a proper auteur with like that kind of art film sort of like leaning. Um, And I think that seems to be quite important to him that he, that his work remains sort of like grounded in these kind of like exploitation origins, but that it is like artful. Yeah. I mean, people often frame him as some sort of um, provocateur, which he kind of knowingly is, but the, it's, it's very difficult to kind of, come up with a conclusive read on uh, Refn as an artist uh, and indeed as a brand because kind of everything about him and his work is held in this constant tension between a kind of egoism and uh, a genuine sincere uh, interest in what he's doing a need to express um, a belief in um, what he's doing um, sort of thing and um, th- this, I think, uh, you know, has all of that stuff going on in spades. Um, it is, yeah, it, it's completely unfiltered. Mm. Um, ultimately, mm. um, I mean, what what something that distinguishes this and actually does feed very much into the length of it is this is easily his most prismatic piece of work. Um, I think it, it takes on so many um, focal point characters and. It has these little kind of like divergences um, from these. I mean, there's that notably there's a subplot um, that doesn't go anywhere where the girlfriend character, Nell Tiger Free's character, um, 
her father having mysteriously disappeared and we know that he's been murdered um, by Martin who just kind of just got pissed off mm. with him um, and, and fucking snapped. Um, she engages a private investigator to try and find the father. But then the private investigator in the course of asking um, Janie, is it Janie? Is that the yeah. character's name? Uh, in asking Janie about her relationship with Martin realises that Martin is a statutory rapist. Um, this is an illegal relationship that's been carrying on since she was 16. There's a subplot that is kind of set up there in terms of like Martin's potential downfall mm. or this or that. And then within, well, I wasn't timing things. Um, I was trying to watch this as much of like a single flow as possible. So I can't even remember where episodes begin or end. Um, within not too long, basically, of screen time, uh, Janie has been shot in the face and Martin's been whisked off to Mexico where he's never going to return from. Which is, um, which is interesting, right? Because... And, then what is the point of the detect- of that interaction? Because yeah. by the end of that episode, it's, yeah. un- it's not needed. I wonder if to an extent it is part of the, uh, the way that the series is looking at institutions, which is not something that really points a finger at institutions. One note that I kind of had from, um, uh, that I made towards the very, very end of it was that with Diana, who obviously works in the district attorney's office as an advocate, um, there is never any meaningful look at the implications of that kind of um, establishment element Mm. to her position or the way the district attorney's office is not necessarily materially different uh, in many ways to the police, which is shown throughout to be... I mean, there's literally that scene where they're standing there for their morning meeting chanting fascism, 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 which is the funniest fucking thing in the world um, and really good. Um, Better than than their passion play when he's asked to leave. Uh, much better than their passion play. We'll get into that in a bit, definitely. Um, but yeah, this this kind of look at um, sort of the institutions that are um, uh, propping up um, so much of what Reffin sees as being late America or Trump's mm. America or whatever. Um, kind of, I suppose in, in ending this private investigative thing so abruptly, it's like um, uh, her... Uh, the private investigator position is ultimately not going to be uh, helpful to Janie in the way that the vigilantes, that is Vigo, that is Yaritza, are for mm. helping their sort of victims, um, survivors, what you know, um, however you want to characterize the uh, people they're working on behalf of. Um, so maybe that's kind of something. Yeah, that's like going like on Diana there. kind of knows like that her usefulness is not like from a legal stamp like her usefulness is to acquire the information and pass it on mm. to Vigo uh to do his work um yeah it's in- it's interesting this because like on the one hand like the show seems very committed to this idea that men are evil right and that institutions are evil um but that, that mm. also that everyone's kind of a bit evil i suppose the problem is with it is like the nihilism does become you know to go back to that term abyss like like this is kind of like stilted in that comic book very i mean the, the fact that there is like supernatural elements in there too means that this this can only have a relationship to the real world up to a point and there is there is kind of a sense that like like i see your kind of your read of the current moment but like it's too miserableist and it's too depressed about the world. Yeah. Um, but like this, 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 the kind of thing about you know, you know what what do men look like in a, in a world ran by Trump? You know, well you've got Martin who is 
a murderous police officer. It's like, well, okay, yeah, we, we, we've seen we've seen evidence of of his type, but the rest of them are these kind of like crony. Like they actually reminded me of um, the scenes in like The Wolf of Wall Street, where like they're all kind of <laughs> you know an, an, another. Yeah film that's kind of trying to satirize like a certain type of toxic masculinity but there was no kind of archetype of masculinity that really like i mean if reference if reference argument is that all men must go then well that's not particularly helpful there's nothing there's nothing meaningful in that observation um i don't know like there's i found myself kind of sometimes on board with his points sometimes suspicious that he was actually making making a point at all and at times i felt like he was confused on what he was trying to say in the first place um and there's definitely these moments where you know like yeah. like the, the the figure of martin is an interesting one right you know a statutory rapist who also kills pedophiles because it shows the kind of this inability to see the wood for the trees which i think is very indicative of a certain type of like short-sightedness that comes with certain individuals um whether you know and 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 the idea that like kind of i don't know i don't know how to say this entirely the idea that like the word that the thing that needs to be eradicated above anything else are like sex criminals especially pedophiles like and i'm I'm not i'm not like saying that like that that's you know i don't th- i don't believe in the death penalty but also i'm not saying that i i care that these characters within this series have died um but it's like a non-solution right it doesn't actually resolve anything it's just something to do while the world ends hmm. like the world is ending let's let's get rid of some pedophiles um and we'll just we'll justify <laughs> it by within the context of apocalypse yeah. Um, but I like to kill people. Pedophiles probably deserve to die. Let's just put those two things together. You know, they're not they're not out there like you know plotting a manifesto for a new like political wave. Yeah. Like there's nothing. There's no. You know, it, it's like these meaningless kind of symbolic acts, which some are, like kind of comes to symbolise a lot of what's going on sometimes. I think the kind of key to um, unlocking that is actually. A um, around or well during the making of this um, mm. of this series, Refn started his streaming platform, and to sort of promote it, he wrote an article in the Guardian newspaper, which is quite an interesting little read. But he um, basically discusses his thinking um, a in terms of why to put out the streaming service, which we don't need to go into. But I know that we both you know agree with cinemas for everybody, etc., etc. Um, but but also like why um what his mindset be- behind making this series was and he kind of wanted to or s- claims to want to um create something that was lurid and provocative in a way that kind of like um instigated um i guess some l- measure of um uh, ethical contemplation or outrage or whatever um in its viewers something to just kind of reflect um, you know, get up off your ass and do something during these uh, divisive times. Now, of course, what you identify within the show itself is that it never really um, moves too far beyond um, sort of vaguely defined um, ideas of paedophilia and, and rape and, and sex crimes kind of being the uh, very worst of the worst, um, which I think is fairly low-hanging th- uh, fruit. 
um, but also feeds into, I mean, it's, it's, you know, not untrue, but it's also low-hanging fruit in terms of a crime series. Um, but it also feeds into or reflects the fact that the show's sense of apocalypse um, and politics never goes beyond mm. um, a kind of cultural ambience, a kind of sense of, like, what does Trump's America look and feel like? It never thinks about uh, specific um, uh, systemic or establishment um, sort of ideas. It never uh, mentions anything about, you know, the literal apocalypse that we're facing environmentally. Um, although I suppose there's a kind of smokiness, smogginess to LA that's kind of general that you could read into it. Um, so, yeah, it kind of doesn't yeah. do much to develop what it means by the end of the world or the end of America uh, or the end of culture. Um, beyond those things. I suppose it just kind of proposes to offer this sense of general catharsis. And I think maybe that's the uh, uh, the main positive that you can kind of take away from it is in particularly in that big final sequence of John Hawkes shooting up a, uh, you know, a, a, a den of uh, scum and villainy um, out in the but also, desert. Why, why were they all there? Well, exactly. Like, like, <laughs> like, so do, they just, do they just like get together and have like a little festival? Yeah, it's just like this is where the rapists and paedophiles go to to live together and discuss their raping and their paedophiling. And how long uh, has she been sitting on this one? Because he was like, I want somewhere yeah. really bad. And she was like, oh, this one. Yeah, she's like, oh, yeah, well, by the way, I haven't mentioned this one to you before, but like, you can literally go out there and kill like 50 bad guys right now. And he does so. And it's this big like cathartic uh, sequence where uh, and Refn really goes like heavy on the graphic novel style. Like, it gets quite abstract, like, doesn't John, it? Yeah, John Hawkes, like, beautifully lit, but against a totally black backdrop. It does look like the kind of thing that Sean Phillips would come up with for uh, one of Brubaker's graphic novels. Um, and, yeah, and the things that he shoots are, again, they're kind of against back, uh, black backgrounds. They're all kind of, like, symbolic. There's a shot where literally... Is it like a bunch of dollar bills are flying out mm. and then uh, a Nazi flag starts kind of floating into frame? Absolutely mad. Yeah. But I think it's meant to offer kind of ambient catharsis rather than anything specific um, in terms of commentary, which I, I think says all you need to know about Refn's um, kind of relationship to coherent themes and ideas and this is ultimately what i was saying like a little while ago about the whole the, the style versus substance um and i know that this is kind of a particular is is potentially like too simplistic a framework for thinking about how style and substance kind of fit together but hmm. like the fact that i don't actually see a thesis in this like um you know that for a start if everyone in the world is this bad then we've had our time let us go like, like <laughs> yeah, right. uh, you know, the, the, there's and there's and with there with there being nothing to fight for here apart from protecting the innocents whilst they're all dying. Like, like what does that even mean? Like, if like yeah. So it feels like on the one on the one hand, it's like at least partly attacking these like douchey broy guys who kind of already know exactly what they're going to do when the world ends. Um, like. Like there's a certain type of masculinity here that it's clearly like sort of parodying the idea of the mm. like the, the the lone ranger, the vigilante, the person who's gonna, you know, and also the fact that like you know they're gonna start they're gonna stand up for what's right, but their their idea of what's right is totally warped by their own kind of like already warped kind of sense of the world and stuff. But yeah, like in terms of its actual thesis, the thing that it's trying to say, like yeah, you're you're right, calling it kind of low hanging fruit. Um, you know this this use of kind of paedophilia and sex crimes as being kind of like evidence of the worst of humanity and it's like yeah no one's no one's disagreeing with that but like 
it seems like there's other work to be done as well. Like, where is your division that's tackling political corruption? Or where's your division that's tackling X, Y, you know, fine. Okay, have a band of killers killing paedophiles. Ultimately, you know, there's there's a gag early on where, like, without a hint of irony, Martin is looking at the body of a paedophile and refers to it as a victimless crime. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's like, yeah. Um, but he don't. But also, the, I suppose the fact that he just fundamentally imagines himself as different. Like, I don't think he's. I'm. There, actually, no. He must know at least a bit because there's a point where Diana asks him about his relationship, right? And he lies. Yeah. So he must be aware that actually he could lose his position with them or Vigo's just going to execute him from behind. <laughs> uh, sorry, you said what? Uh, back. Yeah. Incredible. Because <laughs> Vigo has got nothing to lose. No. Apart, I mean, apart if... from his mother and then he loses her. Yeah. If you... After she eats his eyeball? Does well, that she, happen? She puts it in her mouth but he manages to get it back and I don't think it's... It, you know, it's not the way you would usually get back something that had been consumed by another human. Back to the the idea of there being a thesis um, or whatever, or why doesn't Refn tackle institutional um, kind of issues and, and political crime and whatnot, um, you know, to an extent, he, he doesn't have to. He, you know, he's obviously doing his own work and that this is what the work yeah, is about. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I know I, I introduced that point and I do think that it is all a bit kind of like straightforward and a bit too generic, but um, yeah, he doesn't necessarily yeah, have like to. Yeah, like the, the thing about the police, for instance, you yeah. know, yeah. We can't, we can't, we can't rely on the police force. It's on like, his it's mind. Such a, yeah, and the the police are depicted as as laughable as they are evil. Um, you know, they're they're, mm. they're they're a comedy supporting cast basically in the most um, bizarre and almost surrealist way. Well, actually, it's like that they're all evil, but the reason he doesn't fit in is because he doesn't have a sense of humor or like like yes. a, yeah, he's not funny enough to be yeah. a policeman. Like you got to yeah. you got to be like an evil clown. You can't just be, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Could I propose that maybe one element of it, and I'm not sure how knowing uh, this is, um, the extent to which any kind of uh, narrative work that engages in questions of vigilantism is obviously to a huge extent um, kind of playing within the playground of the right wing. Um, mm. And I wonder to what extent actually maybe this focus on um, paedophiles and sex traffickers and pornographers as being the the object of like most of the vigilantism here mm. um, is because that is a major far right trope these days. Pizzagate. Um, what's that film that's currently doing boffo box office over in the US? That's like a QAnon movie about um, child sex traffickers or whatever. Um, you know, like it's a huge um, it's a huge part of uh, the far right and the religious right, which is also referenced um, throughout the series. Mm and stuff like that and i wonder if it's um there's an element of parody um almost at play um as much as sort of serious dealing with the questions of vigilantism i don't know yeah yeah definitely i mean culturally speaking like sex crimes are considered worse than murder and you know whenever this stuff comes up on social media just scroll down and you can see like people people have it like they're calling for heads um like that's the general response and yeah you know that's not you know that's the not due process i do think sometimes like crimes could be punished like more than they are um but but equally you know i'm not i'm not saying we need vigilantes that's the answer um 
So on the one hand, yeah, like <laughs> I, I, I see what you're saying. Like, and it's parodying that kind of like you know quite, I suppose quite pig-headed response. Um, but also at the same time, if you don't see the irony, it's just doing it's giving them that thing. Um, you know, I I don't mm. actually. I, I, I kind of think he has to be fucking a child or a minor to remind the audience that he's not a good guy. Yes. Um, yeah. Like, we, like if, if he didn't, if he wasn't also committing statutory rape, then what's he even doing wrong? He's doing what's necessary. Yeah, kill these pedos. Like, yeah, like... I, I, I feel like that's almost built in as a way of kind of avoiding that misread. Yes. And because, and of course, he, um, towards the end of um, his time on the series, um, he's actually handed in his notice as a cop. He's left yeah. the force. Um, you know, if, if part of the show's proposition is um, all cops are bastards, um, then, you know, Martin would very much seem to um, agree. He decides the force isn't for him. He can't be one of these people. He wants to go out and make an actual difference by uh, committing vigilante justice on uh, what what he sees and what many of us see as uh, the the mm. bad guys. Um, so so yeah, Martin again uh, having if 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 you strip away the statutory rape element and uh, again the show is so like intent on showing that actually it's kind of you know it's more like call me by your name or something right it's like yeah she's technically underage but she seems to know what she's um doing or whatever which there's there's the politics and uh you know problematic elements to that depiction but that's the show's perspective um and that's the character yeah, you you, but that. you can be you can be mature for your age and also still be a child precisely exactly exactly so um there's you know there's there's complex stuff going on there but yeah so if you remove that then the remaining kind of like bad thing that we see um of martin's character is simply that he's a cop and the show doesn't think cops are good um but even then he hands in his badge. So again, what left? My God, it's driving me crazy. <laughs> Just going around in fucking circles. I suppose, I suppose this is the thing as well. Like you know, uh, the, the the circularity of it is kind of in the plot and it's in, but it's also in the way in which it's kind of trying to generate its points. Because on the one hand, yeah, I think I think you can only really think about this film, this series as being Trumpian, um, but also the portrayal of Mexican lawlessness, kind of plays into <laughs> Trumpian rhetoric about Mexico. Yes. And, indeed. you know, across the border, you'll never guess what's happening. Um, like, <laughs> I don't know, like, the whole time I was watching this, I was unsure whether or not I should be offended on behalf of Mexicans. No, you know, I, like this, I completely agree. Yeah. Like, okay, like, everyone's awful. Everyone's evil here. But, and I, and I do think it has that kind of, like, okay, you know, it's not like America's any better. In fact, if anything, America seems to be a, maybe worse um but yeah equally it's kind of taking issue with like masculinity in the age of trump but also absolutely doing everything that or perpetuating all of those you know ideas about what ha- yeah i don't know I, yeah. I i wasn't quite sure about me- i really liked the time we spend in mexico from like a a visual perspective i think it's when it's i think it's when like the the kind of the abstract like the, the, the sort of the measured pacing works best the, like me- the scenes in mexico are incredibly hypnotic 
and and there's an actual narrative tension that um, Refn is kind of able to indulge in a way that uh, never really quite exists in a lot of the other episodes. Um, even the one where Martin goes down to Albuquerque to exterminate those two pornographers, one of whom played by James Urbaniak, which is incredible casting um, and a very interesting performance. Um, but even that just doesn't have much of the inherent, uh, the same inherent tension, even during that big car chase, which is so weirdly mm. uh, soundtracked to uh, freaking Manilow. Um, what's the song called? <laughs> I, I love Mandy. Mandy. I yeah. love that. Oh my god! That that needle that needle drop actually does work yeah, for yeah. me because it's absurd. <laughs> but I suppose that's it. Is 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 he's on this absurd mission? Like mm. it's all mad. Yeah. Um, and that is, and that I suppose is 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 kind of important and actually is kind of central. I suppose to what Refn is ultimately doing. That like this is all absurd. It's all mad. Everything is mad. Yeah. Um. But also in Mexico, this is where like Yuritsa comes in, and for my money, I think Yuritsa is the hero mm. of the series. Yeah. Um, it's it's the one who Refn seems to get behind. But like, we're no longer dealing necessarily just with the lawlessness of Mexico now. She's literally like this mystical figure who arrives from the fucking desert. I mean, in terms of like, you know, I don't know if I don't know if it's uh, if it, if it necessarily applies with the same term, but like what. Edward Said used to write about the Orientalist kind of tropes, yeah. you know, the mis- the mystics, the magic, and all this, that, and the other. Is, as, but but reinforcing otherness, like, yeah, Yuritsa is like literally the high priestess of death, which I don't know if is based in actual folklore or is just made up by Refn and, and Brew Baker. I'd have to look it up. And yeah, she arrives, kind of gets in with the cartel kills those men threatening women you know that's fine I, I, I it's interesting actually i feel better about her killing um the men the, the, the cartels who are you know uh, trafficking women and uh, abusing mm. women because and she doesn't need the qualifier with like that that like uh, what's his face uh, martin does to be like oh yeah by the way still still a villain you know fucking a child still a villain she just kind of gets on with it yeah, yeah. I, I, I quite like Yuritsa's character because I don't think Refn gives away too much. Like, her arrival is mysterious. Her Like, the stuff that she's doing with Jesus and, you know, there's, like... So the, the Jesus-Yuritsa uh, relationship is mad. I mean, I do yeah. have one issue, right? For this... And this is... Well, not as one. One, I have many issues. Before we get to Yeritsu and and Jesus and the kind of, you know, the ghost of Magdalena, um, women in this kind of whole series, despite the fact that I think actually Refn is more sympathetic towards women than he is to men, mm-hmm. um, and I think this comes through evidently in like Janie being, you know. A bratty child in some regards, but also kind of headstrong and got a soft worked out. She she's under her father's thumb a bit, but she seems to know how to handle him. Um, you know, before the weird bit where he starts wanking in front of Martin and Martin kills him. I don't even I don't even know what to do with that scene. I don't think Refn really knows. Yeah. I think that seems like a let's let's do something fucked up. Like this this is going to be a fucked up moment. Forget about it. Yeah. Um, 
But then in Yaritsu, you have basically, you know, she is this kind of, she is the, the, the angel of death, the, 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 the high priestess of death that they're going, going for here. Um, but she's this kind of like symbolic cipher, like this, this kind of necessary force to come in and, you know, redeem and save women. But she's also fundamentally supernatural. And for that yeah. reason, there is tied up in this like a sad message, which is like to women that like you have no chance, like this because she's fantasy. The way she the way she acts is yeah. inhuman, often. You know, like the reality is, you don't go into a room of armed people and kill them all. You get one or two, and then they kill you. Um, like <laughs> I don't know. So I, yeah. I I don't know. I, I I feel like on the one hand, this film. The series wants to come down on the side of Yaritza and women, but on the other hand, I don't think it has like the tools at its disposal to properly like deliver a satisfying resolution to Yaritza and what she's getting up to. I don't know. How do you feel about? Well, I suppose um, one of the kind of exploitative or grindhouse um, or cultish uh, sort of related aspects of the genre being explored here is, um, I suppose, some of the resemblances to a rape revenge. Um, movie, although of course none of the um, survivors of sexual assault are the ones who become, you know, the givers of revenge in this. Uh, Yaritz is sort of doing it instead on behalf of others, and um, the John Hawkes character is doing it on behalf of others, and, and mm. um, as is Diana, the Jenna Malone character. Um, so that's um, one interesting kind of uh, way to look at it, and in terms of fantasy and um, uh, fulfillment of fantasy as well, um, to an extent. Um, part of the kind of show's deliberate anti-quote-unquote political correctness, um, I suppose, kind of complicates that. I mean, in some ways, it kind of the the idea of violent revenge is a cathartic and satisfying and positive thing. And of course, you know, that's what art is there for: is to work through um, things that you can't really go around doing in real life. At the same time, does it kind of undermine um, any kind of sense of a positive? Uh, message that Refn might be trying to give us at the end when she, you know, truly fulfills herself as the High Priestess of Death. Incidentally, um, High Priestess and Death are both two different tarot cards, and I think the idea is that, as in a reading where you draw the two cards right, at once, yeah, yeah. and that becomes uh, meaning, I think here she has combined those two things within herself. Death, incidentally, in tarot, and I'm no expert, but I, you know, read around it slightly in preparation for this. Um, death in tarot is not necessarily about physical death so much as it is about spiritual transformation, you know, uh, moving on to something else kind of thing. So I think that's, that's what the death is there. Um, this leads us into what I think is a very useful um, brief discussion of some of the actual actors, some of the characters that are kind of propping all of this up. You refer to her as something of a cipher. I think everybody in this fucking thing is a cipher um, of some description. Um, that's part of Refn's approach, and um, in including in his films as well. Um, so we can go back to Martin, ostensibly the protagonist of this Um He's very still, very quiet. As you said, it could have been kind of earmarked at one point for Gosling, although I don't think Gosling could have done it with quite the same kind of like skeeziness that Teller um, can kind of inherently bring to the role almost. There's something quite sort of dirtbaggish about Teller and uh, I think that's played upon um, quite well even when he's not necessarily allowed to act in a particularly interesting way. Um, I mean, how did you feel about this supposedly anchoring performance and how Refn uses him? 
it's restrained to the point of offering nothing at times. Um, I I think it's the wrong sort of performance for a lead, but I suppose yeah. like it matches the whole sort of like disengaged style of everything else that's going on anyway. So having someone who was too is too chatty, too expressive, and also I suppose it it, it further invites us to scrutinise mm. the fact that he's quite unreadable makes reading on the viewer's part really important um so we have to we have to think more carefully about his actions about his responses and stuff yeah um i think it's fine i i mean he made whiplash and you know that's that is a very good film i don't think i'm yet sold on miles teller as being a particularly great actor um i think ryan gosling's better um he he definitely has a lot more range i think Mm mm-hmm better performances here you got christina rodlow um as yaritza gives good that sort of steeliness that she brings to the role um damien is great yeah the moment in the i think it's before the the uh failed assassination attempt on him where they're yes. bouncing to music yeah amazing amazing Absolutely hypnotic I think we both agree that, um, yeah, so the the actor playing Damien, um, Babs Ellison Mokun, um, I think I didn't butcher that, um, is, uh, uh, yeah, no, I, th- I think he gives the best um, actual performance, or certainly from the supporting cast. Um, it's it's wonderful, incredibly compelling every time he says anything. Um, His every, voice is like, fantastic. Oh, it's wonderful. And even just him, like, giving, you know, still looks in the way that most of Refn's characters kind of just have to do um you know even then he's just um there's an inner life to the performance that you're not really getting from teller for most of it um his cheekbones are offering a performance in their own right yeah hawks i should say is giving a very uh again very much um kind of stuff going on behind the eyes very much an emotional inner life there but the weird thing is he's always shot so that you can't really see his face or kind of Mm. make out um, so I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just the fact of his kind of um, physical presence kind of um, allows you to read a lot of things into it. But I found yeah. him weirdly compelling, but Refn didn't seem to be interested in him as a compelling actor, which is a shame. It's kind of um, it's kind of wasted on, on yeah. the Hawks, who, who gives great. In terms of the, the, other, the other big male cipher of this piece, uh, you've got uh, Augusto Aguilera as um, Jesus. I think he's doing a lot more than Teller personally Mm. it's an interesting he in some ways he suffers even more in terms of Refn's obsession with using him as a purely visual motif like he's he really focuses on his uh handsomeness his physical beauty um his body in certain shots like he really slowly tracks all the way along Mm. his body at one point there's one significant but I think incredibly heavy-handed sequence where um uh, Yaritza Uh, puts makeup on him um thus making him he's still very beautiful with makeup on um and kind of turning him into his mother and there's this big like freudian thing where um he's he's treating her as his mother there's like a role play thing going on so that's very freudian but at the same time he's um been asked to be made up to be his mother and um he's looking in a mirror and there's all sorts of stuff going on that's um i think compelling and there's a lot to it, but it's also kind of like in terms of what is the show actually trying to say about this, you know, kind of forget about it to an extent, actually. 
Um, it's pop psychology, isn't it? Um, yeah, that's the way to put it. Um, and and actually, to be honest, connects quite nicely to Only God Forgives because Magdalena even looks quite similar to Kristen Scott Thomas as Crystal in Only God Forgives. So, and again with the pop um, psychology, this character is called Jesus and there is so much significance that is supposed to be afforded to that and you, you could write some interesting essays on it and the fact that the mother is called magdalena an obvious reference to mary uh, magdalene um, in the bible and there's so uh, you know he's but he's kind of throwing things at the wall uh, maybe somebody who knows more about christianity than than i do could actually mm. you know make fucking hay from this but as you say, pop psychology. Well, I suppose, it's, I suppose it's the point is like everything, including religion and law and that, has become cartels. Yep. Like they're all, it's all kind of, everyone's a gangster, is, is kind of, seems to be the point that runs yeah. through. Do you want to say much about Jesus and Yaitza? I mean, yeah, basically she becomes his mother and they, he, he has this kind of quasi incestuous relationship through. Is it actually confirmed or just implied that his relationship? with his mother was actually incestuous no i don't think it's ever um, um confirmed it's just it's, it's just it's just he clearly had desire yeah it's just a sort of general fetish yeah. thing it's his peccadillo because uh. everyone because there's there's the implication also of incest between don ricardo and um Magdalena as well not the fact not ever acted yeah. upon but at least incestuous desire um mm. and the fact also that you know both he and um in fact he also picked up on Yaritza sort of channeling the spirit of Magdalena and there's a moment where like Yaritza's kind of offering sexual favors to Don Ricardo although he's not really mm. in the state to receive um yeah. That whole episode's interesting. The dropping of Miguel is interesting as well. Like he's set up in in, in episode yeah. two to be a much more significant part of it than he he ultimately ends up being. Um, yes, and that that sort of battle between you know the son and the nephew, I thought was going to be much more substantial, um, but it's resolved within twenty minutes. You know. That sort of yeah. expediency is not typical of Refn in this series. This comes um, in actually to a fundamental question we have for this, which is the extent to which it is a, you know, we can treat this as this kind of single film because it's it's clear that um, though, as we said at the top, we've got no fucking idea what he would have wanted in a second season. Um, he was, I think, angling for or thought there could be a second season so perhaps some of these things were supposed to be picked up um again later it would have been it would have been yuritsa bringing about the apocalypse yeah, right? yeah. between yuritsa and jesus like there that that inferno was gonna come which in terms of like the you know the complicated and at times hypocritical um thinking that it has on certain things it's like great so you you replace the the apocalypse, the cultural apocalypse as brought about by violent men with uh, women doing the violence instead. And it's like, uh, is, I don't know, is that fully like what yeah, Reffin yeah. thinks is um, some sort of like positive um, uh, way forward? I've, I've, you know, I don't know how to read this. So I was going to say, because Jesus is at Yeritz's mercy, right? Yeah. Um, and again, that's done quite ham-fistedly. Like, as their relationship becomes sort of like this... So, I don't know this this kind of reflection of his desire towards his mother. 
um, Yuritsa increasingly adopts this like dominant role to the point where they have like you know pretty much sadomasochistic sex. Um, she mm. penetrates him with the handle of a whip, and within the kind of the ham-fistedness of some of some of what Reffin is sometimes capable of, I think that that is supposed to visually cue that he is now at her mercy. You know, I'm not I'm not going to go as far as to say that it's like you know latently like homophobic or anything like that but like there seems to be something that's in that act um yeah and i think it, i think i think the, the sexual politics of that implication are a little bit dodgy um mm-hmm. but yeah so so as a result of this you know as you say jesus is doing his work but he's doing it you know beneath the shadow of Yuritsa. The whole thing about men being evil, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, women aren't bringing about a utopia. They're just literally being handed the gun. Also, like, Diana's mm. character, I didn't find tremendously compelling, like, to be one of the few who would have survived into season two. Um, yeah. I don't quite know what else she could have really done. It's very possible that her having, as you described earlier, a breakdown, which I suppose I didn't necessarily latch onto but i think that's precisely what her um, arc over the final two episodes kind of is um because she has these visions of apocalypse it's kind of sent her um into in her final scene where she's giving that lengthy monologue about what she's seeing and the uh, the apocalypse and nihilism um etc um she she is almost in a kind of like um oh god what's the phrase like a catatonic um yeah, almost, yeah, sort yeah. Of semi-catatonic sort of uh, trance um thing so that that is very interesting but i think I think it's quite possible that that was actually supposed to be pretty much the end um, of the arc as such, unless, you know, she was going to be kind of reborn, um, having met up with Yaritza, the high priestess of death that she's predicted is going to... Because um, it's kind of implied in the final John Hawkes scene where she's saying, you know, I see somebody coming to join us um, in a vision, not literally. That is, that is Yaritza? That, that seemed to be the implication. That's what I felt. And I think mm. she might have referred to this figure as being she um so i'm not certain okay. about that but i think that is what i read from it so in that regard it does kind of a, a offer a a, a, re, a resolution of sorts yeah yeah that that monologue you mentioned is an interesting one i actually wrote some of it down which was soon violence will become erotic torture euphoric as the public perform executions propelled by the wrath of fascism like Incredible. Yeah, but also it's a lot, like, yeah. and it's words that don't always like necessarily mean a lot in combination with one another, like yeah. torture, euphoric, um, and violence being erotic. It, like they're compelling like things to a degree, but they, they it's kind of meaningless. Mm. Um, and also, if violence is becoming erotic, which is kind of adding a sexual component, that like isn't the whole? Are they all against sexual violence? Or maybe that's it. Like we're like it's just becoming like everyone's, you know, falling to this kind of like bacchanalian sort of yeah. It's, well, it's, it's, it's Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, Hieronymus Bosch. Um, yeah, you know that that kind of thing. I, I don't think she's necessarily uh, happy about it. <laughs> um, so if we're talking about the end of the show and this um, final prediction, and then Yuritsa becoming the uh, the high priestess of death and all of that. Um, perfect excuse to say so eddie 
does that ending um, really wrap it up as a single film? Like, were we justified in recording this episode in the first place? Uh, is it a 12 and a half hour film as Refn has claimed? Or is he once again kind of overselling himself or maybe uh, being a bit of a uh, inconsistent thinker? Um, where does it sit for you? Well, I think I think the reason that I would say it does work as a film is because it equally doesn't really work as a series. Um, yes. The fact the okay. fact that the fact that the episodes are so irregularly timed, you know, we're going from thirty one minutes in some to an hour and forty in others, and literally back to back, you know, you'd be doing one hundred minutes, eighty minutes, seventy minutes. Like he clearly, so he's not making this really with any sort of media specific stuff. Like he's borrowing from the length that's afforded by being able to work within a TV context. But mm. that coupled with the fact that Refn from the beginning said he's making a film, you know, he's literally like having to advertise a, t- advertise a TV series and still in interviews, he's saying this is a film. I'm saying it doesn't really work as a TV series. So it's either kind of an unsuccessful series or a very, very long film. Because I don't think the pacing is measured. Like, if these were tight 40s or tight 60s in every episode, then actually that is following the structure. But it's, And actually, this is where duration is really important for the tele- television format, is because he's constantly breaking that. Um, which means it seems like it is kind of just being separated more as episodes in a more abstract sense. Or, like, if you don't want to sort of, um, you know borrow too heavily from the language of tv we could call them volumes or parts or sequences um but mm. i could imagine this being played out albeit <laughs> for many many hours as one continuous thing the other sort of important elements for tv episode structure is like having like internal plots that are like tidied up um yeah often doesn't happen um the sort of the ending sort of like the the, the the total lack of resolution at the end, like the beginnings and ends of episodes, if you're going to call them episodes, don't really fit like the form of television either. So this, I, I think this has been imagined, like conceived as a single work. It's been created as a single work. And the requirements of Amazon was you split it. And he split it into places where he sees sort of natural gaps rather than as a series of episodes. I don't know, do you agree that it doesn't really work as TV? I do, um, for precisely the reasons that you uh, elucidate. It kind of goes beyond that. I mean, the thing is, it is sort of a single film that's just been split up, but at the same time, it's like... um, There is no... When he was um, kind of initially um, doing the publicity rounds for this, you know, he was saying, like, uh, oh, it's all just... Um, part of a kind of flow you can kind of come in and out and it's just like this streaming thing you whack it on and you just let it go um but at the same time i don't know the the very fact of every episode opening again with the title of the series the fact of every episode or installment um closing with credits and it's not like the credits have been just whacked on there he's also made sure that every or most episodes are edited in such a way that the music that plays over the closing credits um, is queued up within the final scene and then it simply mm. fades um, to the credits. So it's not... So so when I was trying to watch it as much as a single film as possible, it was literally impossible to do so because um, the music starts mm. going while the, uh, while, while the film is still running and then you have to kind of just abruptly stop that 
um, to avoid watching the credits. So it's it's completely impossible to do that. So he's, and as I say, that's an editorial decision because he does not have to cue the ending music in the final scene. He could have the final scene running and then stop it, cut to black, and then put the credits on. And that would be far more convincing in terms of, oh, I had to cut this up mm. and put the credits on at the beginning and end of every episode. So, you know, he's he's completely shot himself in the foot there in terms of, like, treat this as a single work. Another thing that he said is you could watch the episodes in any order. I mean, that's stupid mm. um, because there is a linear plot and things would not make sense if you did them in any order other than the one in which they have been given. Um, so, again, absolutely ridiculous. And it also means that it doesn't necessarily work as quite the big sort of new media experiment mm. that I think he wanted to cure it up as, which, in, you know, part of which includes the idea of, oh, it's a 13-hour movie that's been cut up. So, you know, all of that, absolutely ridiculous. It does not work as a single um, film necessarily, but as you say, it also doesn't work as um, kind of TV. What I think I've landed on describing it as, um, which does categorise it as a single work, but is still definitely not a single cohesive film as such, um, is to call it a graphic novel, um, partly coming from Brubaker. But you also notice that each of the episodes are, uh, as you mentioned earlier, they're called volumes, which would, you know, which reflects the way that a graphic novel is compiled. Often it is um, uh, volumes that have been individually released or serialised, and then it's all kind of collected mm. into a, uh, a single thing. So, you know, one of the most famous graphic novels of all time, Watchmen, is 12 uh, volumes that had been published elsewhere um, in different instalments. Um, and I think that's exactly how Too Old to Die Young um, yeah. ultimately kind of feels, how it's ultimately compiled. Um, these are chapters or volumes in one okay. single novelistic work, um, which is similar to a lot of really good TV, I think. You know, each season of Mad Men, for instance, is like one uh, novel um, in its own thing. But, you know, they each have a, a, a beginning, middle, and an end to each of those seasons. Um, Twin Peaks mm. The Return to an extent has something of that although again that uh, there's, there's a lot to that that's necessarily TV and David mm. Lynch and Mark Frost know that um, so it's it's never I don't think you're ever going to truly get um, uh, I, I, I don't know I mean you've got earlier examples that are sort of that were released in certain markets as full films you know um, um, various Fassbinder series were released as long films uh, elsewhere um, we've already done O.J. Made in America, which was first shown as a, a, a long film. Um, something like Shoah has been serialised on TV. Yeah, sorry, go on. One I was going to mention, which um, is kind of is kind of interesting in this regard, and actually we should probably come back to it at some point in season two, is um, Grindhouse by Tarantino and Rodriguez. Ah. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, those are different cuts when they decided not to um, do it as a single film. Um, and then you got all the trailer stuff in in the middle, which just became like YouTube fodder. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd hardly like to come back to that one because I haven't seen it in a long time, and I I really mm. liked it as a single film and didn't like it that much at all as separate films. So, so so somewhere in the middle, I think a graphic novel is a good solution to our problem here. A motion yeah. picture graphic novel post film. Post television, post the end of the world. Um. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Jesus. I mean, and that was part of why we wanted to include this as one of our kind of. We, we've said this on Mike before. You know, we we plotted out twelve 
um, things to do uh, in the way that one would plot out um, one academic semester module. So, and this was our kind of, um, you know, our thought process behind this was like trying to litigate this idea of like the mini series or the streaming mini series or whatever, and to what extent it can be um, sort of evaluated. So, there is some sort of meaning and um, intellectual purchase to you know, working towards saying no to Old to Die Young is not a film, but it's kind of sort of halfway there or whatever. Um, I, I, yeah, I think, we've, I think we've got there. I think it has to be understood within the context of it being produced as a series, but also yeah. conceived as an individual work. And even if he was conceiving it 10 years ago before, like like years before Amazon got involved, if he was thinking about it being anywhere near this length, he would have had to have been thinking about it in TV terms. You know, yes. because he's not Bilatar. And it would have had ad breaks 10 years ago as well. Like, you know, just because the constraints have come off because he's doing this for online streaming doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, there aren't still constraints remaining. That The episode, you know, I know what you I know what you were saying earlier at the beginning, towards the beginning about how, you know, like the, the kind of the looseness of it is like, you know, is all part of it. But like, I... Do you think had he had to have been strict, it, it, it might have benefited the series a little bit? Like if he, <laughs> if he had to stick to forty or sixty um, minutes. Yeah, anyway, I've got I've got three relatively easy, not not easy, but I've got three questions for you to wrap up. Firstly, what's your favourite episode? Oh shit! Um, Put you on the spot. Well, you mentioned you mentioned five. The earlier which is well when they go when he goes you know um five is the most kind of straightforwardly um recommendable i think but i don't think it's the best and i think there are a lot of um issues um in it aesthetically thematically stylistically uh performatively etc so it's not really that one i think the two most satisfying ones for me are two and ten ten partly because it's only half an hour um, but still retains the slowness and the hypnotism of the previous episode. So it's quite a good, like, it's too old to die young light and kind of works. Um, it mm. does answer a few questions to the series. It does give you a few satisfactory um, wrap-ups. So it's it's pretty good. I quite like the finale. Um, but two is also the, um, of the long ones, probably the best for me. How about you? Mm. I do. So I like the... I like that five and I think seven are more propulsive. Um, five five begins with that excruciating scene, um, the the pre shoot interview um, where the eighteen year old boy is. It's like it's one of the most uncomfortable sequences in the entire series, and like you can cut the tension with a knife. It mm. ends a bit ridiculously with. Um, the producer sort of you know standing up standing up and quite flippantly being like okay rape him boys or something like that and it's like <laughs> fine well, you like you could have cut before he said anything and we would have known what was going to happen of course. but you know some sometimes sometimes um Refn can't help himself right yeah. he's got to explain that it's going to be a theater of pain and um violence is becoming erotic and what's not Although, yep. you know, who knows? That could have been Brubaker, you know, and if so, I apologise, Raffin. Um, <laughs> that, that, and that one, and that episode also, it has that great scene where he's, like, tailing the brothers and they get to the bar and he, he actually goes up. And, and we get to see some of Martin at that point because he gets to mm. sit down with the two brothers at the bar and he talks about his relationship with Janie in a way that actually reflects, I think, more about how he really feels about it 
and and actually it being something that's quite perverse yeah um than we've seen yet again he can't quite see his similarity with it he still thinks he's superior which is interesting in itself um and i do think one of the fascinating things about martin and it really comes out in that episode is that he's not like developing like morality as the series goes but what he's developing which i think is interesting is like an ethos like he just has principles Mm. um and and actually that's kind of dangerous because if like having kind of these these are the principles i live by and i also kill by um well not, i suppose live, he doesn't really live by them these are the principles i kill by <laughs> um uh, like it means he's kind of like detached from any sort of like real responsibility for what he's been up to in his own life Anyway, I do think I do think five's quite good. Seven is the one where um, the, the, we have the demise of Damien. You have an almostly an almost like hilariously slow pan to Damien's like hands on the mm. floor at the end of it, um, and I do think actually the, the the shots of Damien handless in is like one of the most disturbing sequences in the in the series as well, mm. despite being like constantly like punctuated by a violent atmosphere like does often pull its punches quite a lot of the time the violence is off screen um it's like always peripheral um we have moments of like really over the top violence but um i also i I do think episode two is great i think the stuff in mexico is really it's potentially problematic for its implications but it's really well shot um jesus is an interesting character yuritsa is clearly the one that ultimately reference most invested in i find some of the stuff with diana and uh, vigo like fine but plodding i ultimately don't think vigo and martin are different enough mm. and i find that kind of bit a bit of a problem so that's my first question was what are your favorite episodes my second question is what does the title mean oh shit <laughs> no, I, mean, I agree. Oh my no idea. god! Yeah, the whole time I was watching this, I was like, "Okay, how old is everyone? <laughs> what what is the appropriate age to die? How when can you?" Be... <laughs> I think it's just cool, well, right? To die it's young, that, specifically. It's that pul- it's doing that pulpy thing, right? Where yeah. it's a cool title, it doesn't really matter. What What was the third question? <laughs> the final question, briefly, is it fucking worth it? Um, if you already have the issues with Refn as this quote-unquote substanceless uh, stylist, um, then no, it will not... Nothing about this will change your mind, and I don't think... I think the style is compelling as all fuck, and I found most of it really hypnotic, and I could absolutely sit there for, um, uh, you know, a, a couple of hours at a time just watching this incredibly slow plodding stuff happening and i was happy as fucking larry um and i would love to be able to recommend that to all and sundry but um if you already don't think there is much to reffen then even that will not change your mind i'm quite sad to say that um i should say i don't i you know i again don't agree that he is or rather i do agree that there isn't necessarily huge amount to him in terms of um ideas but the style is so amazing. And I think the stuff that he does kind of throw into there, I just like watching him uh, think through 
the things that are on his mind and use his deep kind of understanding of film style and stuff to those ends. So, you know, if if you can get by on just the pure aesthetic experience of cinema and, you know, you, you don't really care if he's leaving you with anything at the end of it in terms of messaging or positivity or or thesis then you know you're going to be fine but i i do mm. not think it's easily um something you can call uh quote unquote worth it for a lot of viewers how yeah. about you you know i i like bits of it i find other parts of it quite tiring um there's a few aspects of it i quite I, I kind of dislike i do i do ultimately think this is too long um i think going back to what we're saying is i think if he was if he was more kind of um rigidly sticking to the actual frameworks of tv which i think does support this idea that he's maybe doing something else um but if he was doing that i think he would actually benefit for it by having to make compromises in terms of the start and and there are there are moments where we we are you know we are watching 10, 15 minutes worth of content, which is ultimately, in terms of our narrative understanding, expand, expendable. Um, I totally agree that it's kind of, there's moments of this kind of sublime, dark beauty. I mean, it's, it's very nihilistic, it's fatalistic, it's bleak, it's staring headlong into the abyss and there's no light coming through. But it's also hypnotic, um, it's enraging, yeah, I, I I don't think I don't think a lot of people will find this worth it. I think actually, if you are the market for this series, film, whatever, you've already probably seen it. <laughs> um, and if you're not, then it's not going to interest you. Um, so yeah, I think it is and isn't worth it. I will um, say, I I may never have bothered getting round to this had it not been for the podcast. Uh, I'll come out for reference theatrical films, um, but you know, the the whole, you know, the peak TV thing and the fact that it is 12 and a half hours long, you know, it, even if I can, having come out the other side, say that, yeah, I was probably the audience for this, I don't think I would have gone to it in the first place if it had not been for the podcast. So, I don't know. Yeah, if this can turn on a few other, like, reference-adjacent fans to, you know, finally start it, then we'll have, we'll have done something worthwhile, probably. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and that's all we can hope for. Right, so let's wrap things up. What, what, what are we doing next then? Well, next episode is orders of magnitude shorter. It is literally just 180 minutes, which is the shortest possible length for a film on this podcast, apart from comedies, but that's a whole different conversation. Go back and listen to our It's a Mad, 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 Mad World episode. Fucking love it. Anyway, <laughs> um, back down to just 180 minutes, exactly three hours long, on the nose. It is Christopher Nolan's uh, Oppenheimer, written and directed by Nolan, uh, released literally a couple of days ago as of time of recording. Uh, much more mainstream, much more accessible, much more straightforward. Um, Eddie, are we looking forward to this? Neither of us are big Nolan cultists, are we? I... <sighs> I know I'll be impressed from a technical perspective. I don't know how much I'll like it. Um, I, as, I, as you say, that, that, we're not cultists. Um, I like I like films he's made. I'm quite tired of some of the other ones. What's your favourite Nolan out of interest? Um, I, don't, I don't really know. 
Do I even have that? Is the, that is the answer of someone who really doesn't care that much about Nolan. Okay, I think that it is probably The Dark Knight, and I would very much stand by that. Inception is largely compelling, but it's also kind of leaden, and it's, um, you know, it's not half as interesting as I think it could be. Interstellar, I am actually kind of an interstellar person, frankly. Um, I think he manages some of the emotion very well, although as you said earlier when we were talking about it off mic, um, also a lot of it is very hokey and kind of not necessarily in his wheelhouse as a um, as a director. So um, yeah, it's got to be Dark Knight, Memento, Interstellar for me probably. Yeah, I've never been massive on M- M- Memento. I think, I think, you know, that's one that's all form, right? It's it's so it's such a boring mm. story without without the the, the, the trickery. Um, yeah, sure. You can't watch it too many times. But um, um, but Dark Knight, I think you can watch constantly over and over again. <laughs> it rocks. I think I think the Batman trilogy as a whole. I've, I've because I'm uh, yeah I quite like Batman comics. I'm actually probably more of a Batman Begins guy because I don't think Nolan really got Gotham right after that one. Um, okay. And I I actually think. It's comic bookiness, like slowly just goes away in in his films. Mm-hmm. Um, so Batman Begins is still nicely comic booky. Dark Knight has the Joker, but that's about it. Like, oh well, you know, maybe the Harvey Dent stuff. Dark Knight Rises is not really a comic book movie, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so yeah, I the first two Batmans I'd say are great. I I would say Inception is one of my favorites of his because i think it captures what he does really well without him having to worry too much about the stuff he but i think he's increasingly become sensitive to like clearly he's got he's got a memo from somewhere about his ability to do kind of emotional moments and you know in the interstellar sequence where he's like basically watching his children age it's like yeah it, christ it will get you but i i do think yeah I do think that people slept a little bit on Interstellar when it came out. I think it's a better film than maybe its first reception kind of, you know, some people were always going to give it a five-star review. I mean, you know, Empire Magazine is always going to give a Chris Nolan movie five stars. Um, I don't think they've actually (laughs) not given him a five since like the prestige or something like that. I don't know. I don't follow Empire. Right. You know what I mean? You know, know. but but that's, 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 that's like the Nolan cultist, right? It's that straight down the middle film journalism, kind of regular sort of film fan. Um, So shall we, shall we wrap it up there until next time? Absolutely. Yes. Thank you very much as ever for listening to so long suckers. Um, We, we do enjoy doing this and we do enjoy working through some very long and very uh, um, difficult things at times. Um, I've been Callum. Uh, You can find me if you so wish on Twitter and on Instagram at C A L U M B K R. That's Callum B K R. Um, The podcast itself does have a Twitter and an Instagram, although I don't really ever update those because there aren't enough of you to make it worth it. But come and follow us because we're cool and we do post things for the people that are there. Eddie, who are you? Where can you be found? Uh, what's what's your deal? I'm, I'm Eddie. I can be found also on Twitter at Eddie Falvey. You can yeah find me there. I've, I publish things about films. I am in the process of finishing off a book about Nicholas Vending Refn, which is co-edited with Tom Watson and Kate Moffat and will be out with Edinburgh University Press, hopefully within the next six months or so. Um, so yeah if you want to check that out by all means do although maybe you know probably shouldn't say this but wait for the paperback because otherwise it'll cost you 80 quid <laughs> <laughs>